and we're back episode 53 panoramic outdoors podcast welcome and before we get into our very intriguing guest here i uh, just want to take a minute to check up with check in with the fellas uh chase sheldon myself tristan around the table here and today afforded us the chance to do something that we have not done in a very long time and that was to go out fishing together go out fishing um not to brag but i caught the most fish in the boat tristan caught the most species and chase might have caught the biggest but it's a pretty rare occasion we get together and and all three of us do really well fishing again it wasn't the case today but uh but yeah. it was a great day on the water, and then we we had a bit of a shore lunch there, fried up some fish, fried up some smokies, and it was a perfect ending to to a good day on the water. And yeah, I think this trip was a little bit influenced on our guest from from this episode as well, because we were trying to find a, a couple drum so we can cook them up, which was success. Yeah, we got one. We got one. Yeah, nice eater size. It's. Uh, you know, um, so our guest is Hank Shaw, and he's, he's really influenced the the way I've kind of thought about providing food for, for myself and my family, and he's certainly um, doing that quite a bit for others as well. And when you take his model of living, how he fills his freezer with, with meat that he um, acquires and food that he acquires, you know, you have to learn how to be a good cook, right? And it's, it's, it expands your, your, uh, I guess the, just what's available for you to become food. Cause I mean, traditionally we used to just really focus a lot on walleye fishing. And now Hank's kind of opened up my eyes to, to the drum. So, Tomorrow, species, yeah. yeah, tomorrow we're going to try uh, cooking up a drum, so. Yeah, the thing was, like, our fishing trip was a little bit short. Uh, we were trying to get out there at a decent time, but we didn't get out there until about the crack of three. So, uh, reason being is because we had a late night last night. We had a, some people over at Tristan's place. We cooked up some great food, some ribs, and uh, Josh McFadden was there. He cooked up some spring rolls, and we got to talk around the fire and share a few beers we had a bunch of trans canada beers there so had a few beers told some stories and uh a huge shout out and a thank you to trans canada as they sponsor our podcast and sponsor what we're doing and help us out and support us as much as they can so a huge thank you to them if you ever want to go and check out their tap room get a pizza go to 1290 keniston check them out on the website www.tcb.beer they actually did a uh, a bunch of renovations in that place and uh they've also expanded their menu there too so it's not just pizza anymore they have uh they have like some some bar food there so like sliders and and uh i think some salads and stuff like that so it's uh i'm gonna be heading there pretty soon to go enjoy a night there i know they have a lot of live music and stuff there on the weekends and and uh, it's a pretty pretty sweet environment. So that kind of brings us around to uh, our our burning three questions here for ourselves here, and that's uh, is this a new tradition now? I w- I would like it to be. It's it, I get kind of excited looking. Yeah, thinking I like about it. what we're gonna talk about. Um, so what's on the grill, fellas? 
Well, I'll start out just by I kind of cooked up some ribs for everyone last night, and it's something I've been doing quite a bit now. But now that I have that pit barrel, um, and not only that, but you can actually just like kind of uh, cook it on high heat on your barbecue as well. But I use like a short rib, Korean rib. Some people call them Korean ribs, um, but they're super good. It's like they have a little bit of brisket meat on them, so you can literally just like throw them on a barbecue at four hundred whatever five hundred degrees and kind of just like flash fry them kind of in a way or flash grill them or however you want to say it and sauce them and they're super good but yesterday i threw them on the pit barrel for like 45 minutes to an hour and then threw them on the fire on a grill and sauce them and yeah i think they're pretty good so that's my that's what's on my grill they were deadly man yeah it was good thanks yeah um on my grill this week i guess what i'm what i'm looking forward to is doing that drum up tomorrow and i think i'm going to uh probably just do it over the open fire split it in half and then get a get a nice coal bed going there and get that a bit of uh blackening happening on that on that meat so um i guess by the time this podcast comes out we'll already have uh i already have shown you that on our instagram feed so we hope you enjoy it <laughs> the uh the nature of mixed media yeah. kind of uh what about you, Tristan? Yeah, I'm going to cheat a little here, and I'm going to say uh, brook trout. And the only reason the brook trout was on the grill was... That looks unreal, by the way. i got to throw that in there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I threw a little leftover brook trout on the, on the pit barrel when Sheldon was doing his ribs. And it actually, no seasoning whatsoever, and we just hung it off a meat hook, uh, extra fillet. And that was unbelievable. Um, but what I did... On the barbecue at my place here is I just threw a, a book, brook trout fillet on as well. Reason being, I was making sushi that night, and some people can eat um, the raw stuff, some people can't. So we had, you know, I made sushi both out of like cooked brook trout and the the raw brook trout as well, and uh, I'd have to say it it turned out pretty good as well. That's phenomenal sushi. Yeah. So what's on the tap, fellas? Oh, on the tap, Chase, you better take this one over because I've got to think about this one. <laughs> um, I mean, Trans Canada is knocking it out of the park with those county sours this summer. They we, we picked up a bunch of their uh, their raspberry county sours now that they they just released, and they're just as good or better as the the cherry one. So, um, what did they send in that last one? So was that raspberry? That's raspberry. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, and it's kind of like the their U picker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a raspberry U picker too. So the really cool thing I like about them is their like ingredients are all sourced from Canada. Yeah, and it's like seasonally sourced, yeah. right? So you're not getting like their ingredients aren't like frozen, whatever it may be. Yeah, into their batch, it's like actually pretty fresh and seasonal. So yeah, kind of neat that way. Yeah, I would love to say Trans Canada, but actually to throw in another. Uh, not really a curveball or anything, but I tried um, a moosehead. Uh, what was it called? Rattler, grapefruit. Yeah, that was good. I'd throw that into the mix. Yeah, it's a good summer drink too. Tristan, what are you up to with your drinks? Yeah, and uh, the the interesting thing here is that yeah, I've been still having a bourbon or two. Let's be honest, but. Uh, <laughs> 
um, the, the Transcanada Mixer Pack, there, there is a, you guys will have to refresh my memory because I, I haven't had very many of them, but it's one of their kind of like. The Belgian table? Yeah, the table beer. Table beer, yeah. Oh, man. That was, that was a tasty little summer one, too, as well. So I was re- pleasantly surprised with that sampler pack. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I probably pick one of those up again, too. So that's what's been on the tap for me. Now, moving on to what's on the turntable. And uh, I'll start this one out. <laughs> I was I was at work the other day, and uh, a buddy that we we're working with, he's he was playing the music, and and uh, he had on like just a, some sort of like '60s mix kind of thing, and it took it took me back because I remember mom used to always listen to that music at the cabin and at home and stuff like that so um i've been turning that on quite a bit this week and today on the boat had it had it going for a bit so um that's what i've been listening to like the 580 style kind of yeah cool yeah throwing it back i've been uh uh the outfield oh what's that song called i might have to like pop it up on my phone here (coughs) oh your love Man, I've been rocking that like super loud in my truck, and it's like it feels like I'm driving like a 1970s Camaro down Main Street because it's just like I don't know. Bring I don't. It doesn't bring back memories, but it makes me think of like the 70s. But that's what's what's been on my turntable. <laughs> that's awesome. I, uh, I I had some Blue Rodeo on this uh this morning, and that helped get me kind of in the groove. And uh, just a great Canadian band, and I it brings me back to the time like we saw them live, and. Uh, I, I swear to God that I thought they were lip syncing for the first half part of the concert. And then halfway through, you just figure out, no, they're just, they're that good. They've played that many shows and they're that smooth and they're that crisp. It's unbelievable. So always appreciate just t- throwing a little blue rodeo, relax and uh, kick back. Yeah, it's awesome. In other news, so um, big game draw results came out this week and sheldon and i both drew for no big deal archery elk super pumped so we're pretty pumped about that that's exciting i'm I'm excited for you guys i'm hoping to get out the camp a little to do a little filming a little you know morale boosting yeah well that's the thing i think it's gonna work out good for us three um if we continue our elk hunting little tradition there um just for the fact that like you said tristan if you can come out and do some filming and, and just hang out at camp and then next year hopefully you get a tag and I can come out and film for you or Chase or whoever, right? So now we kind of got like the flip-flop. Hopefully every year we can at least have one tag to go and see if we can harvest them, uh, an elk with. Totally. So now the planning planning begins. And other news too, did you guys hear about uh, zebra mussels in Nelson River? I did. did you see that or no? Yeah, yeah. I think I was telling you. You were telling about us about it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's something that's pretty unfortunate, but... For everyone that's out fishing there, do your uh, due diligence and clean your boats and yeah, do what you got to do. Yeah, there was definitely lots of zebra mussels on the beach today that we're hanging out on, like Winnipeg there, so. Unfortunately. Yeah. And then turning to Hank now, it, it, it's interesting because I was thinking about this podcast the whole week, kind of knowing that we might be talking to Hank here, and uh, it was uh, kind of kind of nerve-wracking in some ways because like the guy pretty like formidable writer and uh got a ton of knowledge around the cooking 
Yeah, like sphere. Just knowledge in general. Like I've uh, before getting into this episode, I did a little bit of research and listened to his one when he was with Joe Rogan, um, and the Meat Eater one, and yeah, very. He knows his stuff, you know, and it's it's nice to talk to, uh, or it's fun to talk to people when you, you know, can just basically pick their brain at anything you want to ask him about when it comes to cooking or hunting or fishing. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't much that was off the table to talk with about Hank and he's like you guys said, a very brilliant person and uh and still humble in some regards too, right? Like he's he's uh sounds like he came from humble beginnings and, and he carries that with him. Right? Yeah. And for sure. And you can tell. Um but just a great guy and doing phenomenal things for, for the outdoor industry and the outdoor world. So yeah, and I was familiar with some of some of his outdoor work, but it was it was interesting talking with him because as you chatted with him, it became very clear that he had such a wide span of uh, knowledge and experience that it wasn't just outdoor um, knowledge. It wasn't just cooking knowledge that he's he'd been around the block a few times in yeah. different areas and uh, was able to bring all that to the table. So I think the podcast with Hank just turned out great. And uh, I, I hope folks listening today are going to enjoy it just as much as I did sitting down yeah, and uh, chatting with you guys and Hank. Without further ado, should we light her up? Light her up, man. <coughs> All right. And uh, so welcome to the show. And uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on. I know you were up in Manitoba earlier. Was it last year or the year before? I'm trying to rec- remember here. It was last year, or no? It was it was 2018. It was high. It was right right around this time, as a matter of fact. It was uh, it was really kind of hilarious because uh, we're at the brewery getting ready to do an event for pheasant quail cottontail, and I was going to cook Mexican food. And hilariously, they're like, "Oh, you can't cook Mexican food in Winnipeg. There's no Mexican markets anywhere." So I like I whip out my phone and like, "Well, there's four. You just don't know about them." So I went down to the, the market, got everything I needed, and I'd switched up because it was going to be a little warm that day, you know? Yeah. I think it was going to be, I don't know, it was very warm 90, 92 or something like that, which is, you know, so by 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 way of comparison, it's 105 here in Sacramento today. So, you know, I didn't think anything of it. Apparently... It was like Armageddon in, in Winnipeg. All over the radio, they're like, stay inside, you could die. Yeah. It's the most hilarious thing I've ever heard in my life. So like, you, you didn't find the heat that incorrigible? No, I had my windows down. It was fine. I think the big thing about Manitoba is that we kind of go from one extreme to the next. And yeah. uh, obviously the heat isn't such an extreme, we'll say, for uh, somebody living in California. But... Um, like in Celsius wise, we go from, we'll go from like a minus 40 and then in summertime go up to, you know, plus 30s, plus 40s with, uh, with the humid X kind of thing. So I, I guess we're not quite as, uh, as used to the, the hot temperatures as, as you guys are. No, I mean, that is the thing about the Great Plains. I mean, and you're, you're on the edge of it. And the thing about, especially the Western part of the Great Plains, like Alberta all the way down to Colorado is, you know, it could be 42 degrees centigrade today and, you know, 12 tomorrow. And it's just this, the, this weird, 
you know, whipsaw of the weather that the plains gets really makes living there a little bit more challenging. I mean, here in the central part of California, when it gets hot, it's going to be hot and it's going to stay hot. So you yeah. get used to it. One thing I do like about California, though, is you have lots of different options. Like if, if, a, if a guy wanted to do a bit of traveling, he could get out of the heat and find a mountain somewhere and climb to the top and, and uh, find some cooler temperatures. Oh, I, I do that every summer. In fact, it helps get me in shape for hunting season where I'll I'll start taking hikes at 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 feet. And it's it can be 60 degrees cooler up there than it is at my house. And it's also 60 degrees cooler off the coast once you get out off the Golden Gate because uh, the water that rushes past Northern California is so cold, it cools that whole area and it's just nothing but fog and, and very, very cool temperatures. So that's a huge whip, whiplash. I mean, you can be home, you can go fishing all day for salmon and, you know, it's 62 Fahrenheit when you get back on the, in your car and it's 105 when you get out of your car. Yeah, it's just it's, nuts. That is crazy. And then we have the thing, it's like, it's super hot out here in the summer. Plus we got about 8 billion gazillion mosquitoes swarming us as well. So we've got you do, yeah. you do. We do not actually have a mosquito issue in California because it's so dry. There's no standing water. All right. So I guess to carry on to the conversation, we got five burning questions or I have five burning questions for you. Um, you can answer these point form. You can elaborate if you want. Um, but they're just... the answer is B. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that wraps that up. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Um, <laughs> so I know, like, uh, I've followed you along here for a little while now, and I know you're big into, obviously, hunting, fishing, and foraging, but if you did have one last meal before you took off from this earth, what, what would that entail, and, and what would you put it? And not only that, you can add a drink, and you can add your PBR or your scotch or whatever you want, but what, what are you going to have on the, on the table? Well, I think... It would change probably depending on my mood and what time of year it is. But right at this particular moment, it would be a fried soft shell crab, bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. So it's it's a whole soft shell crab that's been floured and fried with Benton's bacon. Benton's bacon is from Tennessee. It's the greatest bacon on the planet Earth. Lettuce and a really good New Jersey beefsteak tomato. Homemade mayo. Good crusty bread. Done. And just you, an amazing, amazing, amazing sandwich. And do you wash that down with anything? I guess you don't really have to wash it down when it's an amazing sandwich, but do you have a drink? I don't know. I would probably wash it down with a, a, a West Coast IPA to be named later. You know, there's so many good ones. Yeah, for sure. Um, question number two. If you had one last concert to check out before, uh, before you're taking off after your supper here or your little sandwich <laughs> you just had and you had to go watch a concert next, anybody, alive or dead, who would you go watch? Guar. Nice. Totally guar. Because, you know, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out in style, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have them throw me into the world maggot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, third question, you've, they're obviously a traveled, traveled man, and you've been in a lot of spots in the U.S. Where is your, uh, like, if, you don't have to give us GPS coordinates, but if you, where's your, like, kind of, like, favorite place? It could be, like, traditionally or just a spot you've only been once, but what's one of your favorite places in the U.S.? That's a hard one. There's a lot. I've been to every state except Hawaii and six Canadian provinces, so there's a lot of pretty spots. Yeah. Hmm. 
Is there oh. one that maybe holds up maybe a, to help narrow down maybe some nostalgia or? Uh... Yeah, yeah, I would say that would be Block Island. That's a that's an island off the coast of Rhode Island. It's people know it's more famous cousins Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. So, God, it's forty years ago now. Um, when I was a little kid, we used to spend our summers on you know on Block Island. You know, not summers, but you know, two or three weeks. And back when you could do that kind of thing. And at the time, Block Island was kind of the the dirty slutty cousin of Martha's Vineyard and, and, uh, in Nantucket. So all of like the really rich people were on those two islands and, and the kind of blue collar people were on Block Island at the time. It's changed a lot now. Now Block Island is every bit as, as swanky as the other two, but it was a, a paradise and it was a place that really, uh, was formative actually. It's, it's, a, you know, it's got the new England climate, but being an island, of course, there's fishing everywhere and there's clams to dig and there's wild blueberries and blackberries and beach plums and wild peas and, you know, any number of things. And because we were there long enough and since we we're little teeny kids, mom would just basically like go pick rose hips or dig clams or whatever. So it was kind of an adventure land where you could immerse yourself in the wild world at a very young age. And there was always kind of a treat at the end of whatever it is that you brought back. I, I feel like we just ventured down memory lane a little there. Uh, can you can you still smell and kind of taste the, the way the island was back when you were visiting? Yeah, there's a smell that rose hips um, that you it's not, it doesn't smell like roses so much as it smells like if you were to mash up a rose and an orange juice, that's kind of what the ripening rose that smell like in the, in the August sun. Wow. And then you mix that with the ocean cause you can always smell the ocean on the Island. And then there's that, you don't get it here in California because everything is dry, but in the East, when you have that kind of heat, there's this green smell that you get when things are just hot and lush mm. that you can definitely always remember. It's amazing how uh, senses get enmeshed in our memory and uh, how vivid they can be. Oh, yeah. Well, right on. That actually brings me into my next question, question number four. Um, I guess, uh, I think, if you correct me if I'm wrong, but you grew up kind of on the uh, close to the Atlantic, um, digging, mm-hmm. digging clams or doing, doing all that stuff. But if you did have a last fish or one fish to catch for the rest of your life, tug is the drug. Hashtag tug is the drug. What would you be catching? Well, okay. So if you're talking about like one fish to catch because it's fun to catch, as in like the fight. Sure. Let's go with that. And then then I know you're like the catch and cook kind of guy too. So let's just part it in two ways. You can do the fun fight and then the fish that you'd catch just to eat. There's so many really fun fish to fight though. That's the thing. (laughs) I would say – okay. So right off the bat – I really like catching amberjack. Okay. Uh, amberjack are a big ass jackfish that lives in the Gulf of Mexico and the, the warm Pacific part. It's like pulling in a pony. <laughs> like it's, it's just nothing like it in freshwater, like nothing, not even close. And so imagine, you know, hooking up to a Ferrari that hates you. And that's basically an amberjack. Right. <laughs> so there's, and they're also very good to eat. They're super fun to catch. Um, 
Tuna are always fun to catch because tuna don't give up. Sharks give up. I've caught a lot of sharks and sharks are like dogs. I don't know if you've ever dealt with like veterinary stuff or trying to give animals medicine, but you know, if you overpower a dog, dogs ultimately going to be like, yeah, whatever. Right. Give me the medicine. Or a cat, on the other hand, a cat's going to fight you tooth and nail until it, you or it are dead. <laughs> and, and so tuna are like that where sharks will just, eh, oh, you got me. And so there's sharks as big as they are. Like I've caught, I actually caught a white shark many, many years ago. Um, they're, they have a little bit of a, they're, they're not as good as you think they are. Um, to eat, maybe the kind of the coolest combination of, of catching and eating would be a yellow tail. That's also a jack. And that lives in the Gulf of Mexico, like way far south, like in the Yucatan. But you can catch them in Southern California. And so they're not as strong as an amberjack, but they're better eating. And that's a really great combination. Um, I, I have a hard time getting – I don't really ever get tired of halibut. And I don't really ever get tired of um, really good like sockeye salmon. Yeah, man, I got I got a, a good friend of ours, and we try and visit him as much as we can. On the uh, he lives over in Nanaimo, just off of the BC coast there, and he runs a a bit of a salmon operation, small salmon operation, just uh, a guiding outfitting operation, and he will not take us halibut fishing because he says they're bottom feeders. <laughs> <laughs> whatever (laughs) whatever but like you know i mean i have butchered so many salmon and so many halibut and guess what they both have worms yeah i i I personally love halibut like a good halibut steak is is a phenomenal piece of meat to put on the table i just bought for my my birthday's coming up and i uh for my birthday present to me i just bought a bitch and bitch and reel like a it's a it's a deep drop reel which with uh two gears to it so, and I just, I just actually today set it up with 300 yards of, uh, of 65 pound braid. And, uh, that's what I like to run for halibut or grouper or, I mean, I suppose you could catch Lakers in, in the Great Lakes with it as well. It's just a fantastic rig that, that you can haul things up off the bottom from four or 500 feet pretty easy. It sounds handy. So and- you were up here and you landed up cooking up a little freshwater drum. So where, where where's, the, where's the freshwater drum stack up in that uh, equation? I actually, you know, this is going to sound insane, but I actually prefer freshwater drum to walleye. Yeah, or I, as you call them, jackfish. You you might have uh, you might have cost us a few unfollows there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's the thing, right? So walleye is great. It's a it's a it's a clean fish. It's easy to fillet. It's a it's a blank slate. Yeah, I mean you can do a lot of things with walleye. It's kind of boring, you know. It's it's there. It's nice. Like I I'm, I'm happy to eat walleye, but it's not interesting. And I've eaten so many species of fish from you know practically the Arctic Circle to the to the equator that I want a fish that has a personality. And walleye doesn't have a personality, you know. Where freshwater drum does because it's a little bit oilier, and it's not oily in a bad way. Uh, not like a you know. I mean, I actually like herring and mackerel and bluefish, but they can be too oily for a lot of people. Mm. There's just enough grease, so to speak, in a freshwater drum that gives it some character. And 
it also may be why people don't love them because a lot of people would say, oh, I caught a drum and a walleye and I'm going to just roll them in cornmeal and fry them the same way. Well, that's not really a great way to cook drum because of that oil. You grill them or you smoke them or you barbecue them or you broil them. You do that and you might change your mind. But if you fry it in the same way you're going to fry a walleye, it will not be as good as the walleye. We'll loop back to that because our questions are starting to go from burning to smoldering. So, <laughs> <laughs> so my last question for you, um, knowing that you do a lot of hunting, angling, and, and foraging, and that you, I, as far as I can tell, it's like you haven't bought, you know, you don't go and buy your own food as much as uh, maybe the, as the rest of us here sitting around this table, but do you have that one guilty pleasure food that you just got to go and buy from the, from the store? Yeah, sort of. Well, I guess the easiest one to say is is um, really good bacon. You know, I I can make bacon. I can make good bacon, but I can't make great bacon. Like, because that's takes somebody who does it all the time. So, bacon would be one, and just like really high quality pork. I have a soft spot for. I've got three friends who are hog farmers, and they raise really good pigs. And the thing you end up missing a lot if you eat wild food all the time is fat. You know, our ducks are fat. Um, occasionally you'll get a wild pig that's fat. And I don't really hunt bears, but bears can be fat. But other than that, everything else is super lean. And so when you finally get your hands on a piece of really well-raised pork, it's – especially for me, right? Because I don't eat fatty food very often. It's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so like just like those trappers back in the day that used to get the beaver tail and they just, I think that was like a delicacy for them is get a beaver tail and eat all that fat on there. Oh, it's totally. That's, that's, you, and you have correct, cracked the code on why beaver tail was considered good back then. It's like people will eat it now. And like, oh, it's good. Like, no, it's not. It's disgusting. It would be, it's, <laughs> it's only good if you haven't eaten any sort of fat for like a month and then it's amazing. Right. So the pork that you're sourcing, uh, just, uh, I, I guess elaborate on that a little bit. You're, you're, you're buying pork from, smaller producers the guys a couple are, of friends yeah right so that that's coming from a very um i guess concentrated or just just a well-raised and know what you're getting kind of thing oh yeah and they're just they're just amazing amazing pigs There's, uh and they're actually both kind of out your way one is in michigan and the other is in ohio uh, and i have a friend here in california too but uh it's always fun to you know it doesn't happen often maybe once a year um, I'll get like a big giant box from the, you know, in the, in the mail and you gotta be home for that one because you don't want a <laughs> yeah. big box of pork sitting on your doorstep when it's a hundred degrees. Have all the cats at your door. <laughs> you have <laughs> totally. to bite all the cats. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks for doing the five burning questions. That basically concludes it. And, uh, welcome to the panoramic outdoor show. You hey. made it. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, Hank, I think we're just extremely grateful to have you on the show because um, what your life's work here and like kind of what you put out there really speaks to what we're trying to accomplish is really deep in a connection and understanding to where our food comes from. And I guess the, the, the place we would like to start is like, how did that all kick off for you? Because it seems like in today's day and age, that's not a very easy kind of um, starting point for folks. I think, I mean, I, it, to some extent, I've been doing a, some pieces of what I do now my entire life. Like I mentioned Block Island before. 
Uh, I've always been an angler. I've always been a gatherer of wild plants, mushrooms, and things. Uh, I didn't actually start hunting until I was an adult. Um, but so this has always been a piece of just how I live my life. And my mom has a lot to do with that. Uh, my stepfather has a lot to do with that. And it's just a thing that you end up carrying with you that you don't really think about too much until you realize that not really everybody else is doing it. Um, and God, I'll never forget. I was at a dinner party in California and there was this couple from Orange County. And if you're not familiar with Orange County, Orange County is not really well connected to the wild world. Um, there's some good anglers there, but like there's most people don't know where their food's coming from. So I had just been to a fish market and there were largemouth bass in a live tank for sale there, which I thought was weird. Uh, I later learned that the people farm largemouth bass for the Asian trade. So like the uh, Asian people like to buy live fish. They farm these these largemouth bass and they, they buy them live. And so that's that was the explanation for it. But I didn't know that at the time. So I was remarking that that seems odd. Like why would they have all these, these game fish in for, for sale? And this lady that at the dinner party was got really super indignant with me saying like, well, how do you know it's a largemouth bass? So of course my 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 brain goes like oh well because the well, first of all it's green and second of all the the <laughs> the jaw goes past the eye and you know a small mouth and like and then I as I was thinking that through in my head I realized no that's not what she's saying she's saying that how could I possibly understand what one fish looks like versus the other and my head like exploded mm-hmm. like how do you like how how do you know your your name is an idiot you know because everybody calls you that lady like. <laughs> <laughs> Like, but it was just, it was crazy that there were people that, I mean, I've had, I've had legitimate people say, why don't you just buy meat in the store? Because then no animals are killed. Yeah. Some, some folks are so, it's rare, but it happens. Some folks are so divorced from the reality of where their food comes from that it's inconceivable to them that I had a friend, it's another great story. I had had a friend, well, this, He's a weirdness magnet. His name is Garrett. Uh, great guy. But he, at his work, he got into a heated argument over a woman who was convinced that carrots grow on trees because she had seen them. <laughs> like, how do you even start? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I, I, you know, wandering through life, I mean, I was a journalist for 18 years and, um, you know, I was a newspaper reporter for a long, long time, and you just wander through life, and it's, it's part of what you do, and, and you, you could have these conversations just kind of as a civilian to a civilian. And then, you know, later in life, I had already started hunting. Um, my career as a political journalist was winding down, and I was starting to do more and more of this full time. You know, what ended up happening is this is something that I could – do that would make that would be useful that would be helpful for others that would i could i I could pass something that i knew onto other people and therefore be of some value to greater society for lack of a better term and i've been doing it full time now for 10 years and i'm i don't have a single day that i'm ever bored like i'll never run out of ideas 
So you were able to really like identify this kind of niche or kind of gap in the conversation in society around sourcing our food, thinking about where it comes from ethically, and also like how do we make it wholesome in some ways? I I, I don't like to use the word wholesome because it comes it's a loaded term, but like how do we it's kind of an ad word? Yeah, like how do we inject meaning to it or like not just inject but derive meaning from it, right? And so it's I uh, think when I started there was a bunch of food scares. So one of the things that that both Holly and I Holly is she's she is more or less my wife. We've been together for a billion years and uh, she takes all the nice photos on the website. Um and one of the things that we both have come to realize is that people want to take control of what they feed themselves and their families. And it was very, very hot. And in the news when we started this in like 2007, because all the E. coli deaths and things like that, and people started to trust, I mean, you can see it in, in, in every country right now. People are, tr- are not trusting authority the way they used to. And people want to take some, some agency in how they feed their families and hunting is part of that and gardening is part of that and fishing is part of that and raising your own animals is part of that. And, and you know, one of the things that we've remarked upon is that there is no other organism on earth that as an adult doesn't really know how to feed itself. Like if you think about it, there's no – if there were no stores or farmer's markets or restaurants, how many people out there listening to this would be, okay, I'm good. Maybe this – listeners of this podcast would be different, but the general society would be like, mm, yeah, we're checking out. It's a pretty scary thought because like, especially around the, the whole coronavirus uh, pandemic that we are, I guess, still dealing with here, you know, how many people do you think got terrified? Like, I don't know what happened uh, down in California there, but we literally had a toilet paper crisis here in Manitoba where everyone went to the stores and bought all the toilet paper in the stores. Do you mean you weren't yeah, making we, your own toilet we had paper, Chase? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you got to be thinking, like, what is going through people's minds that, that, like, toilet paper is number one on their list, A, and, like, B, like, they they had no concerns about food or, or anything else like that. So, it, it, they it, did. They did in our supermarkets. When this, when this first started, you couldn't get potatoes, rice, pasta, canned goods. All of that stuff was was super difficult to find. Yeah, that's crazy. And I know even up here, I got a couple of relatives that own uh, appliance businesses, and they said like freezers, what like they couldn't even keep freezers in stock. Like they just generators. Yeah, like everything, like every mm-hmm. kind of appliance that you may need, it was like gone within like two or three weeks, and I couldn't even keep them. Like like as soon as they came out of the truck, they were gone. It was crazy. So Hank, I, I would love to like kind of relate to you kind of like a cultural experience or like maybe even just like a generational experience that we've talked to on the podcast here before and get your thoughts on it. And um, that, that experience being like, we were very much like taught by our fathers how to hunt and gather. Um, but we grew up in this kind of era where, as you've mentioned before, like food has always been readily available at the supermarket. Um and then when we did cook wild game, it was typically overdone or, <laughs> you know, like kind of like uh, dressed up in gravy and things like that. Um, 
what what you seem to be providing in your your cookbooks and your videos and your even your your social media feed is uh, an alternative to like we'll say like the uh the mushroom gravy roast of venison mushroom gravy roast hot dish yeah <laughs> uh where did you find the traction for that? Like what was the inspiration and like um, what was leading into that? I guess is what I'm asking. So like I mentioned before, I did not grow up as a hunter, but I am the last of four kids and uh, there's a seven year gap between me and my sister. So at one point it was just me, my mom and my stepdad and my mom and my stepdad really liked to eat at good restaurants. And so when you only got the one kid, and the kid actually likes food too, you can take him to good restaurants. So, and I grew up in New Jersey, so we ate at some of the greatest restaurants in New York City, you know, in the late '70s and early '80s. And I got exposed to game from that. So the first time I ever ate squab or duck or goose or pheasant or venison were in that setting, and. So in my little mind, game was a was a high class item. It was a special thing. It was there were very specific classical ways to cook all of these things. And so when I started, if you look at the really oldest recipes on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, you will see like civet of hare, you'll see steak Diane, you'll see Cumberland sauce, you'll see all of the dishes that I encountered as a, as a young kid in restaurants, you know, modified for, for a home kitchen. But that's the origin of where, I mean, I never, it never would have ever occurred to me that game would be anything other than a luxury item. And so that's where it comes from. And then just by doing that, and I, and I was one of the first people out there on the internet. In fact, I might be the first on the internet um, <laughs> to to do wild game recipes other than cream and mushroom soup. Um, I'm I'm definitely not the first person out there. There's a I'm part of a long tradition of, of very excellent wild game cooks. But but in terms of the internet age, it it might be me. I mean, it's I did start an awful long time ago, um, and. I just did what I was going to do. And, 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 you know, in those first three years, I had a day job. So I didn't really care about, oh, is this going to get traffic or not? Um, so I just, I cooked as well as I could. Holly took pictures as well as she could. And we just kept going. And then it got a little bit better and a little bit better. And people started to, to like it because some of the reasons that you just described, is like, oh, my God, you, you don't have to cook venison several feet past the inches of its life you know i mean you can cook a medium rare you can't you know or you, you know oh my god you can actually pluck a pheasant well of course you can pluck a pheasant um yeah you know all of these things were like people who grew up with with game like you could do that I'm like yeah why not you know, i'm gonna show you how and so that's kind of been the the way i've worked ever since i feel like we've kind of like Although we started in different places here, we might have we might be converging into a similar place here where we've kind of, we're aiming at deepening our appreciation for that game animal that we're harvesting. When did you real like? What was the aha moment for you when you said, "Hey, like you and Holly were working together, and like maybe you said, hey, we got something here.' Like you were, I'm guessing you were working in your as a political writer still at the time, but 
like what kind of like ticked you on to saying this is the direction I need to head? It's easy. It was, uh, it was the spring of 2009 when I got nominated for a James Beard Award. So in the food world, the James Beard Awards are more or less the Oscars. And to be nominated, you're already, you already won a medal because there's, there's only three nominees. So you're either bronze, silver, or gold. And so I got nominated for Best Blog in 2009. And that was a pretty big moment where – Okay, I mean, I wasn't making much money off the site, but I was getting a lot of notoriety. And then I kept doing what I was doing, and I got nominated again in 2010. And that's really when things cracked open. Um, if anybody out there has seen the movie Julie and Julia, which is about a, an early, early food blogger, and then Julia Child, of course, um, there's a moment where they write about her, the blogger, in the New York Times, and her phone can't stop ringing. That effectively happened after I got the second Beard nomination, and I got a I got the deal for my first book, which is Hunt Gather Cook, and the website's traffic started to take off. And I think that I knew I had something there, so that was good. But what I, that same year in 2010, I did not win the Beard Award. I got you know another group won it, but I was still top three. But that same year, I did win the International Association of Culinary Professionals Award for Best for, for best Blog. So I'm coming off the podium for that, and this guy grabs me by the, the lapels and goes, you're Hank Shaw, I love your work, this is amazing, it's great to meet you. And I'm looking at this guy, I'm like, holy crap, this is, you're Brad Farmery, you're, I've seen you on TV, you're an amazing chef. And it was this moment that I realized that what I was doing was was reaching the chef class, the, you know, the real serious professional cooks, you know, I'd been a professional cook, you know, I worked as a low level sous chef, you know, when I was a early 20 something, but I would never like Brad Farmer. I mean, that guy's amazing. And, and so that realization that I could do something that would provide value to them, that was amazing. I find it very interesting that how your whole story kind of unfolds here. And it eventually becomes this this uh, profession that you're just really known well for. Like if, for those people that are listening that, that don't really might might not know you. Like you were never you never went to school to be a chef. You were just kind of tossed into the hot seat there when one day when the sous, sous chef didn't show up. Right, and then uh, you you never grew up hunting, as you said before. Now, and now you you have this phenomenal uh, book series on on wild game cooking. It, it it's crazy to me to think that that like in a world where you know everything is you know you have to go to school to to be something, you have to go to college, you got to do this, you got to do that, and, and it, it stresses a lot of people out. Um, and here you are a very successful person with great achievements and acknowledgements in this, in this industry. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your introduction into uh, hunting because sure. it's, it's often, uh, I mean, as you, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's a, it's a bit of an issue in trying to maintain hunting num or hunting numbers in, in the industry. You know, and how do we, how do we keep, how do we get new people in and how do we, how do we keep them in and stuff like that. So, 
what was what was your major driver to to start hunting so i uh i it started all just a few miles south of you in minnesota and i was working as an investigative reporter for the saint paul pioneer press in the twin cities and my best friend at the time was a guy named uh, chris niskanen and he was the outdoor writer for the pioneer press and so he and i had been fishing quite a bit uh, you know within weeks of moving there well as the i moved there in the early summer and as the fall started to get closer he started to he was going hunting and and he knew i was a good cook and so he would bring me things like a piece of venison or a mallard or a pheasant or whatever and at, at some point you know it kind of stoked that memory of the these amazing meals i'd had as a kid and he said hey do you want to come hunting and i said sure why not um, I had shot rifles before, but I had never, ever shot a shotgun before. And my, uh, the sum total of my training for shotgunning in that first hunt, it was, a, we were in Aberdeen, South Dakota, chasing pheasants, uh, was, uh, Nisky threw up a whole bunch of, uh, like milk jugs. And if I could shoot one, he's like, all right, good enough. <laughs> That's my hunter education. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do it a little differently up here now, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I managed to not shoot the dog or Niski, um, but I, nor was I, uh, I also managed to not shoot anything else. Um, but it definitely struck a fire in me in the, the sense that not only was there this payoff, just like I'd had at Block Island as a kid with the clams and the fish and the, and the berries and things, but the payoff of a successful hunt is, is an amazing meal and a meal that you can't buy. And that was, there's always been a, a, a thread in my life of zigging where everybody else is zagging um, to the point where like oh, everybody else is talking about, you know, 28, 21 day, 41 day aged ribeyes. And like, I really dig this venison backstrap. This is more different. It's interesting. Uh, it's like, the, it's like the freshwater drum. It's interesting. It's different, you know? So the other piece to it though, it's not just a meal. It's, you know, I'm a very good fisherman like i've spent my entire life you know I'm, I'm about to turn 50 and you know i've been fishing for 45 years maybe more than that but i can only remember 45 and you know when i know a piece of water or know a particular style of fishing i know it really well and i know you that you're not just a person with a rod and reel in your hand you know you're where you're putting the boat and where you, how are you trolling you know, what's, what baits are you using? How fast are you trolling? What time of day is it? What's the tides? Da, 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 da. There's so much more to go into it that it's not just a person with a rod and reel in their hand. And it's the, it's the biggest difference that I saw in hunting was that if you're a real hunter, you're not just a person with a gun in your hand or a bow in your hand. There's so much other external knowledge that makes you intimately tied to that landscape the way I had been tied to the water that I wanted that knowledge. You know, Niskanen has it, and like uh, it was amazing. Like, just one example, we were chasing sharp-tailed grouse and, and pheasants, and I'm like, we should walk that field. It looks great. He's like, now there won't be anything in it. I'm like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, well, let's just walk through it. And we walked through it, and of course, there was nothing in it. And so he would explain to me, well, there's not enough cover. It's the wrong kind of cover. It's been disked or whatever. So he knew all of these tons of details on how to read land that I didn't know. Like I knew all the trees, I knew all the names of the plants, but I didn't know how to read land for animals. And he did. And I thought, well, I need to know this. 
it's amazing how our drive to sustain ourselves or drive to be connected to our food really helps us connect to our ecology and understand that in such a profound way that um, I, I just couldn't imagine it without um, hunting or fishing in my life, really, when I think about it. Yeah, and the other thing, too, there is, like, you, Hank, you said a few things that kind of resonate with me is that, <clears throat> I, like, I hunt with my with my old man, and <clears throat> I've done a lot of those same kind of same questions, like, oh, well, why don't we go and try over there? And why don't we do this? And the, the guy's got so much knowledge of the of the forest and the and the agriculture land, et cetera, that he's just like, no, we don't even need to put a trail camera there. I know there's no deer over there. And I challenge him all the time, and he always he's always right. And I'm like, damn it. Like, one of these days I'm going to be right, but... Yeah, taking that knowledge uh, of the bush and like even the waters and stuff is is huge, and that and that's exactly why we like having these podcasts is because you know we're uh, we're in Manitoba where we have a select number of animals that we can pursue and a select number of fish that we can try to catch, but um, we we would like to expand our knowledge, right? And so this is all great stuff. I really like it. I got a tip for you. Sure, I'll take. So it. I was in Manitoba at God's Lake, and we were deep dropping for Lakers. And unfortunately, mostly it was catch and release. But uh, but so we're deep dropping for Lakers, and I brought my own rig, right? So I this is this is an aspect of fishing that I'm pretty good at is is deep dropping for anything. Were you at the honey so, hole? Ah, we're somewhere in God's Lake. I don't know. Chase has been deep dropping. I don't for live Lakers there, so too, you know so. how am I supposed to know? Uh, <laughs> so we're we're dropping, and it's pretty deep. It's like it's it's like a hundred feet, and. So I have a, a low-profile bait caster on a medium action rod, and then I'm running a, uh, I think it was a two or a three-ounce lead-headed jig with a big old, uh, like, light blue, sparkly, like, you know, it's got, like, stripper glitter on it, uh, kind of a, uh, a swim bait. And we use these in the Pacific Ocean to catch lingcod, and the, 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 the guys are, are Cree, and they're like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. And I'm like, hey, I'll, just, <laughs> I'll change it out if it doesn't work. That's fine. I just want to try it. 37 straight drops I caught fish. No way. 37 Incredible. straight drops. Same lure. I have, it a, <laughs> I have it in a special box now. It's retired. It's all ripped to shreds, and there's only like a third of it left. But many of those fish were burbot, and I happen to like burbot a lot. And the, <laughs> the Cree guys were just like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, oh, come on. They wouldn't even let me do shore lunch. So like, I had to do like a segregated shore lunch. Of, of <laughs> and, uh, and I fed them to them. And they're like, they, they said they were pretty good. And they would, they would actually consider those for shore lunch from there on in. I'm like, see? No. Sometimes they, you know, that's the other thing that I have brought to this world that I think more people are doing now. But I was an early person doing it is that I didn't come from any corner kind of culture at all like that. So why not? do x y or z mm. well you just don't well that's not an answer you know you, they're sometimes they're right but many times it's just like freshwater drum like oh, we don't eat those yeah. why not because yeah. oh, i don't know and because they're icky you know <laughs> come on you know why are they icky so like you, you pursue that line of questioning and, and I'll, many 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 times people come like uh i don't know and then so you just do it and then their their eyes are open it's kind of amazing but that big old lead-headed swim bait for lake trout and uh, burbot in deep deep lakes works like a charm. I can't believe you caught what thirty seven. You said thirty seven. I'm surprised that thing lasted that long, man. You got to give those guys a shout out for uh, for the quality of bait that they're they're putting out. 
Yeah, it was um, – I, I brought it from California. It's uh, Ham, Hamlin, I think is the name of the company. Anyway, it's a, it's, it's a big old – it looks like a you know, swim bait, and uh, it's like like light sky blue with stripper glitter on it. Nice. Even even like quite frequently, one of the one of the go to lures is just like a, a tube jig with a three ounce lead lead yeah. head on it. And man, I've like maybe five fish on that, and you're you got to swap them out because they just won't stay on the, on the hook anymore. Properly. At some point, it was just it was like, how long can I do it? And like, it's just it doesn't look like much of a swim bait anymore, but. Yeah. <laughs> It was still working. Still That's still the great working. thing about those big Canadian lakes that nobody really fishes. It's like there's no pressure on them. The the thing I gotta ask here, maybe my uh, vocabulary is not that big, but stripper glitter, as in oh. like, <laughs> is that like stripper glitter from the pole? That or? is exactly what you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can smell Vegas. It's funny you talk about uh, these different fish too and stuff that you're catching, and and like people turn their noses up at them. And I, I've kind of, I mean, you're, when you came to Manitoba, you posted that you're cooking a freshwater drum and, and it was phenomenal. And it, it kind of turned my mind onto freshwater drum. And I still haven't actually caught one that I small enough that I wanted to cook. Not to say that I catch big ones all the time. I just don't catch that many of them. Um, but often I find myself going after something whether it's a different season or a different uh species or whatever it may be and thinking to myself okay people people normally don't eat this but like how can i make this taste good how can i how can i feed myself with this if i want to because like you're saying i i absolutely enjoy walleye and i love love a good walleye fry but how can i make something different with something different Maybe in that same season, or maybe when the wally aren't biting. Maybe maybe it's drum. Maybe it's maybe it's burbot. burbot. Or maybe snot it's, rockets. Yeah, whatever go. it may be. So, I, I, I love the Slew direction sharks, right? that, that that you have, the mindset that you have here. Well, it, it it extends into ingredients too. So one of the things I discovered when I was in, you know, the center of Canada, is extra virgin, unrefined canola oil is oh, yeah. amazing cold, cold press it's your it, right? product it's amazing it is every bit as good as fancy fancy olive oil but it's cold pressed expeller pressed canola oil it's bright bright yellow and has an amazing flavor and it's i don't know why more people don't live and die off this stuff it's just it's every bit as good as california olive oil or italian olive oil but it's a it's a it's a thing that most people only know the you know refined stuff, which is fine to fry walleye in, but it doesn't have any flavor, mm-hmm. kind of on purpose. Um, but the the really good stuff, it's like your finishing oil. And you know it, what I have found in all of these travels that I've done is that everybody's got a product like that, or a, an animal like that, or a wild plant like that, or a mushroom, or or fish. And every place I've ever been to has something that is super unique and amazing about it that no one else has. Yeah, and I, I've used that. Cold, I, I think they call it cold press stuff in Manitoba here, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's absolutely packed with flavor. But I, I, I'm wondering, Hank here, and like what here, I think kind of what I, I read into you here is that you've really devoted your life to connecting to where your food comes from. And like, not only that, like 
almost like removing any um, any steps between you and your food that might be external. We're talking like farmers or like uh, especially large scale farm operations, those kind of things. Like, what was the driving force behind that? Like, when did you kind of say, okay, I need to like take control over my own uh, consumption here, my own food chain? There were flickers of it back when I was in my 20s. Um, I, you know, newspaper reporters don't make a lot of money. And so there was a period where I literally had to supplement my diet with fish and seafood that I caught. I was living on Long Island in New York at the time. And, you know, it's an island, so there's fishing everywhere. And I fished multiple times a week. And it got to the point where we're like, I don't really ever need to buy fish ever again because i'm a good enough angler that i will always have fish and you know i can i if there's variety i can eat fish five days a week maybe even six and and so there was this i could do that like it's it wasn't that hard you know i mean i I, (laughs) and it's sort of a realization that once you get good at hunting or fishing or foraging like it's not that hard to get Flash forward to 2004, and I just moved to California. I'd been hunting only a couple of years at that point. And a thought got into my head like, I bet I could hunt enough meat for the whole year for the two of us. And I had like, I remember, I'll, I'll always remember, I had like a spreadsheet and like, I need X amount of, X amount of pounds of rabbit and X amount of pounds, like I need a deer and I need like <laughs> 35 ducks and da da da. And, and I, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> like, it was, like I was, and I'm not, you know, I'm no Steve Ranella when it comes to the actual hunting of it, but I can definitely outcook them. Um, but like, you know, <laughs> challenge ex- that's a challenge. Well, that's the thing. It's like, Steve's this amazing hunter and I'm an okay hunter. I'm good at some, I'm a good duck hunter. Like, I'll give you that. Like I'm like, I'm, I'm a good duck hunter and, but I'm not exceptionally good deer hunter. I'm an okay deer hunter. And and so, like, even just being okay, it wasn't that hard. Right. And so when you realize that, you're like, well, what else isn't that hard? I, I Yeah, I think I think the the biggest issue with people is, is just diving in and then may, maybe working those numbers, right? Um, and putting those numbers on the table, to be honest with you. You seem to do, uh, do a lot of bird hunting, and that seems to be your maybe a little bit more passionate about deer hunting than, than big game hunting. Is that, uh, Oh yeah. Like I, I, I big game hunt so that I have red meat and I, so that lets me burn hunt for the rest of the year. Right. Right. Hank, can you break down your, your cookbook series for us here and kind of tell us what's going on? Cause I've noticed that you, you kind of have your seminal hunt gather cookbook, which is mm-hmm. fantastic. I've got a copy of your duck, duck goose sitting at home here, which is another great book, but you've, after Hunt, Gather, Cook, you kind of broke it down into like almost like, um, you know, the types of fowl or game that you would chase. I did. I drill, they're drill down. So, so if you think of Hunt, Gather, Cook as kind of the shotgun, it's the primer. It's the Hunt, Gather, Cook is a book that gets you interested in the other legs of the stool. You know, the, the wild food world has three legs. It's got hunting, fishing, and, and wild plants and mushrooms. So if you're a hunter and you're maybe not that great an angler, 
this will help you get you started. If you're a good angler, you're not that good of, at gathering plants, this will get you started. Now, it's not a guidebook. It's just a, it's a way for you to not only get an intro into this, this subject area, but it's, it's to get your, your fire started. It's like, yes, I want to do this. And then it gives you the resources to, to, to go further from that book. So after that, I decided that, well, because I am a better duck hunter than I probably am anything else, um, a duck and goose cookbook was the next thing. So it's also probably the meat that is the most horribly cooked on the on the planet Earth. Well, at least in North America, like I've seen so much bad duck. I'll agree with uh, you. Oh, so much bad duck. And you know, and we're gonna talk. You're gonna you're gonna ask me some simple simple tips on cooking. Remind me about duck when we when we get to that part. But uh, so the Duck Duck Goose came out in 2013, and then um, I the next thing was going to be a, a venison book, right? Because it makes sense. There's more deer hunters in North America than any other kind of hunter by a lot. Interestingly, um, the publisher, Ten, Ten Speed is the direct publisher, but it's a division of Random House, said they thought that the deer book was going to be too much of a niche and that they couldn't pick, they didn't want to pick it up. They're nice people, love them to death, they've got nothing bad to say about Ten Speed. But they just didn't feel that they could do justice to the book. So I started, I did a Kickstarter and we raised the money so that I could start H&H Books, which is Holly and Hank. Uh, and we're the publisher now. So we could do whatever we wanted. So I was very, very, that's an overstatement. I wasn't very, very, I was a little bit irked that I didn't even get 300 pages on Duck, Duck Goose. But hey, you know, what are you going to do? I could get however many pages I want now with Buck Buck Moose. And then that book did really well uh, and it still continues to sell well. And uh, I would argue it's the best venison cookbook out there, but I'm biased. Um, and it allowed me to then go and do Pheasant Quail Cottontail, which came out in 2018. And that is all the small game. So Pheasant Quail Cottontail covers everything that's not a waterfowl and everything that's smaller than a, smaller than a javelina. So it's wild turkeys, it's rabbits, it's hares, it's squirrels, it's all the grouse. Because I've hunted every single species of grouse except for the willow and the rock ptarmigan. I've got white-tailed ptarmigan, but I need two more for the grassland. And so those are the those are all the books that I have now. But in fact, right before we jumped on this podcast, I was working on my next book, which is a fish and seafood cookbook. And that book was going to come out in the spring of 2021. So it's been the hardest book to write so far because, well, like we've been saying this for this almost hour now that, uh, that, you know, I've been fishing forever. And every time I put a sentence down, I'm like, yeah, well, but there's this fish in Louisiana that doesn't really act like that. And <laughs> so I end up knowing too much in that sense that I've, it's been harder for me to, distill it down into universal truths. But, but that's really what this next book is about because it has to be every bit as useful for someone from Manitoba as it is to somebody in Louisiana or California or Alaska or Maine. And, and so you have to think about fish and seafood in a very different way than every other fish cookbook that has ever come before it. And, and I, and I think I've done that, but you'll have to wait to find out. It's funny. That was kind of my next question is if your next book was going to be about fishing. And um, I know it doesn't rhyme, but maybe it should be like Lake Ocean Beer because you do <laughs> you do a little bit of beer making as well on the side, I believe. So I was like, oh, hopefully there might be a beer recipe in there too. But 
Never someday I'm going to do a, a book about probably fermenting, you know, but then beer will be is a part of that. Yeah. Nice. Do you do quite a bit of fermenting uh, just on the on the food side of things? Yeah, I mean it's just it's it's just a piece of what I do on a normal basis. Like everything from you know salt brining, you know the the lacto fermentation to right. vinegar pickles to you know salt drying fish or jerky or salami or or dry cured hams or smoked things, and it's a piece of what I do with all three of the you know wild plants, mushrooms, game, and fish can all be preserved in any number of ways. I said it's funny. Um, I, I we have quite a few conversations about about cooking wild game, and and lots of our friends are kind of the conversations we have are around cooking wild game. And uh, a, a fellow I met uh, through my old job, he was actually a a chef by profession and and uh, a bit of an interesting fellow. And he actually worked under. Uh, chef gordon ramsay for a while at, at his restaurant and <clears throat> anyways he's since kind of switched careers and and uh so he was serving me up this this uh, salami he had chefed up and i said well this is phenomenal like what is this and he said well it's pretty much whatever i had left in the freezer and it's uh hank shaw's recipe just check it out oh wow <laughs> <laughs> nice so that's pretty cool yeah i thought it was very cool I, my favorite thing to do with like, what the heck is that in the freezer is to make a terrine or pate, like just grind it all up and, you know, make it basically a, a, a French pate is like a, a fancy meatloaf and, uh, and it's, it's really good in the duck blind. That sounds like, yeah. Oh, that pate in the duck blind actually sounds really attractive. I'm thinking about those cold days when you're getting rained on and you need, mm-hmm. a, little, you need a little bit more than just like a granola bar. Right, and he gives a bit of zippy mustard on it. Yeah, wake you up. That sounds pretty, pretty nice. I've got to ask you though, Hank. Like, um, how do you get? How did you get Holly on board here? Like, I'm, I'm thinking about like all the Instagram photos I got to take and stuff like that. And sometimes the buy-in isn't exactly where um, it it needs to be. We'll say to get the the perfect Instagram photo, like, um it sounds like you're really partners and your cookbooks and your, uh, your website, things like this. Like what was that dynamic? Like, well, we started, we met at competing newspapers back in 1997, maybe. Yeah. 97. Um, so we were both newspaper reporters and we are both very good at what we do, but we do slightly different things. So the, 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 puzzle pieces kind of fit well and as we went further in our relationship um we've been together since late 2001 um as we got further into it she has always been interested in photography and then she bought a really nice camera to help um take some photographs of a magazine article i needed to do god that would be like 2005 maybe yeah before hunter angler gardener cook um and so as far as the hunting aspect of it, so the, the story she says, she likes to tell the story with that, you know, I taught myself how to duck hunt, which if you're out there and you know how to duck hunt, you realize this is not an easiest thing to do. Like, um, I'm going to apologize 
to the airwaves for if I've walked through your spread before. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> I've done that a couple times. Yeah. And so I would mostly come home. I get up super early in the morning and then go out hunting and I was terrible. And then, and then I got a little bit better. So I managed to kill coots. I can make coot taste good. Um, and that's the that, side note. One of the reasons why I can make lots of different things taste good is because I'm not the most amazing hunter in the world. Like when you don't shoot that much, you use everything because you don't know if you're going to get a seven more mallards or, or another deer or whatever. So, so you end up using more of what you bring home because you don't bring home that much. So anyway, uh, I eventually started bringing home ducks and then, and you know, I served her duck and she really, really, really likes duck. She likes ducks so much that she learned how to hunt to hunt ducks so that we could have more ducks in the house. <laughs> and she likes hunting ducks so much. I'm going to say it. She's a better duck hunter than I am. <laughs> and, and she likes ducks so much that she is the uh, chief of communications for the California Waterfowl Association. Wow. And wow. that is basically like Delta, but only for California. You hang on to that one, Hank. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's very cool. And then, so you've kind of you've started out with the the the, the print platform here, your cookbook, and uh, eventually transitioned into now you're operating a podcast, uh, hunt, sponsored by Phil and Hunt to Eat. Um, what was the impetus behind that podcast? So I had done one a couple of years back and I liked it, but it was kind of ambling, you know, um, it was sort of whatever Hank was thinking about and like, let's talk to somebody and do a podcast. That was fine. Um, I did some really good episodes too. I'm pretty proud of some of them. Um, but a, it had no monetization. And as I've mentioned before, I do this full time and I, and I have to make a living. Um, you know, like I'm looking around at my 60 square foot office and my house, which is like a thousand square foot house. So it's like, it's like, I'm not like I can pay my mortgage. Don't get me wrong. And I can't complain, but it's not like I'm, you know, living La Vida Loca. And, <laughs> and so I needed it to, to actually generate some revenue. And then that first iteration of it didn't. So I thought about it for a while and I came back and like, you know what? I'm going to do this podcast as seasons. And this, each season is going to have an overarching theme. And this first one is going to be, uh, upland all uplands. So it's kind of a companion for pheasant, quail, cottontail. And each episode focuses on a different critter. And uh, I was going great guns with it. And then Miss Rona came in and, and kind of blew everything to pieces. And I'll be honest, like I did not have it in me to keep the podcast up at that point. And so I suspended it and I was like, well, this is kind of perfect. Well, I'm just going to give it a rest until everybody's hunting again. So um, the new episodes, I'm starting to record them already. Uh, the new episodes are going to come out to finish the season starting around Labor Day and it'll run for, uh, this coming hunting season. And then when that season's over, I'm probably going to do one on fish. Cool. Well, I'll tell you what, Hank, if you need any experts on, uh, camp management or fire prodding or, um, drink mis mixology, uh, Look no further. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> and uh, so like you've, you've established yourself in the print medium. You, you're, you're branching out into the, or you, you 
essentially establish yourself in the podcast realm as well. Like, is that is that the future of uh, you know kind of Hank Shaw operations here? I don't know. I you know the more places I get pulled, the more directions I get pulled, uh, the more I realize that I am really at my core a cook and a writer, and I don't want to stray too far from that. I think, um, especially as I have achieved a little bit more success, I do get pulled in a lot of directions. And I, I'm not capable of doing everything super well. I just I just only have so many hours in the day. So I like the podcast. Uh, I can do it. Uh, it generates a little bit of revenue so that it can pay for itself. Um, and you know, I get asked about television from time to time. And I like being on other people's shows. That's fun. Um, and if there were a show that would that I would be happy with, like if, if someone were to come to me and say, hey, this is the nature of the show. And I'm like, yeah, I could get behind that. I would do one. But I'm not going to be Bear Grylls. Um, and I'm not good enough to be Les Stroud. Uh, so Les Stroud, by the way, is a fine Canadian. Um, <laughs> his show is way better. Thank you. Thank you. We, we, we appreciate it and we agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not going to jump up and down in front of a camera for to be just to make good TV, you know, like so. Right. Yeah, so that's like, and you know, television is this weird nonlinear business that like tomorrow some famous person could be like, bam, you have a show and it could happen or I could never have one and that would also be fine. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. And, but I have so many books that in my head that still need to be written that there will be, God, I, I, I think it'll probably have me set. <laughs> You're not going to be releasing any, uh, cooking with your pee recipes for, for <laughs> oh bear girls. Did you <laughs> see what Les Stroud did in the reaction to that show? Oh, he was so funny. Roasted him. <laughs> it was so good. Like he was in the desert, I think. And he's like, yeah, there's no water here. So I could drink my own pee. But that's gross. So I'm going to show you how to make an evaporative still so you can drink just the water. <laughs> it's so funny. As <laughs> you go less. Yeah. Um, Hank, I, I got to ask you. I, I, I mean, I've I've consumed quite a bit of your content, and uh, like you said, you often you often speak on on other other platforms, other people's platforms, and such. And I I believe you made mention about a a, a book you're writing to uh to relate people whether you're a hunter fisher gatherer or none of the above to, mm -hmm. to the outdoors is that still in the works or, or it, it is still in the works but um the the pandemic kind of put that on hold because it's the the nature of that book that that's a book that holly and i are writing jointly and so we want both of our perspectives which are not always the same as you might imagine um, it, we, it's a book that's going to happen and it's a book that is hopefully going to happen when we have the brain space and the ability to get the word out on that book, um, properly. We didn't think that we, the original plan was for it to be out this fall, but with Miss Rona, um, that's not going to happen. And so next year was always going to be slated for the fish book. So it's going to happen. And it's just going to be better for having been able to marinate for a little bit longer. I mean, there's more issues to deal with. There's more essays to write. There's issues of social justice. There's issues of of just aging out 
of of the hunting population. There's all of the deep ethical stuff. There's, you know, just simple stories about like how hard it is to mentor somebody. I mean, both of us, both Holly and I have mentored people and it's hard. Mm. Like the, the single best way to bring someone into the hunting world is to take them under your wing. But that's not easy. Because you have to sublimate your experience for theirs. And it's not even just a question sometimes of just feeling selfish, which we all do. Like, I mean, if you if you're out there thinking, oh, I'm never selfish like that, you're either very old and you've shot lots of things, which is true, <laughs> or or you're lying. It's one of those two things. So you know, that's the thing. It's like it's hard. Like if you're if you're duck hunting and you're trying to get somebody into duck hunting, you effectively are the caller and the guide. Yeah. And that's great. And I can do that a few times a season. But I can't do it every week. It's not easy. I, I I'm guilty of being being a poor mentor myself and and uh in days where I where I've had less time to go out the field and um I hate to say it, but like you realize that you're not actually doing anybody any good or the, the, uh, just the hunting industry in itself any good when you're being a poor mentor. So, uh, that, that's something to really think about if you're going to be taking those steps. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing that I can do that, that will help a lot is I, I, I offer people, people, I get messages every day from people of all kinds of interesting and bizarre topics. You can imagine, um, like weird podcasters from Manitoba wanting you to do a podcast. <laughs> oh no, that's just that's like Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking about like, so I got this deer spleen. I'm like, I want to cook this deer spleen. I'm like, oh my. I'm like, well, all right. There's this dish in in Naples where they cook the spleen and make a spleen sandwich. You can try that one. Um, I don't do it because it's gross, but you might like it. Um, so like that, but. But I get asked hunting questions a lot. And I do these – I do culinary hunts where two, three, four times a year, typically in Oklahoma, sometimes in Arkansas or Texas or some other places, I will work with a friend of mine, a guy named Larry Robinson from uh, Coastal Wings Outfitters, and we will put together a culinary hunt. So like the next one that we're doing is a deer hunt. That one's sold out. But we're doing a duck hunt in January where beginners are welcome and – What's great about those hunts is if we'll get somebody who has never hunted ducks before, sometimes who have never hunted before, they will contact me months in advance because they're like, I want to do this hunt. It's, you know, July and this is going to be in January. I'm like, all right, you need to be in touch with me constantly via email and I will walk you through what you need to do. And if you do what I tell you to do, you will be successful. And it's so gratifying to see that happen. Doesn't always happen because sometimes they think they're that they know things. And usually women are better than men because women will listen. Um, but uh, the greatest story ever is this guy named Eric. He went on one of our beginners deer hunts. He's a software engineer from San Francisco, you know, kind of an indoor cat, right? You know, but he really wanted to get into it. So he took me up on my offer, and he and I were in email conversations quite a bit in the run up to that deer hunt. And on the first day, he was the only guy to get a deer. And wow. he's been hunting ever since. And it's it's been incredibly gratifying to be at least a small part of that. That's amazing. It's amazing because you've managed to like somehow concoct this digital coaching mechanism to help folks 
uh, access the field just a, a little bit easier or significantly easier depending on how much coaching I'm guessing Eric had there? It helps a lot because I can do that without giving up my honey holes. You know, I do it with mushrooms. I do it with wild plants. I do it with fish. I do, you know, if I have knowledge that I can pass on to somebody who needs it, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to share. I'm just not going to tell you my exact spot. Don't give up these spots. Right? <laughs> Here, here's a, here's an onyx. Here's a, I'll put a pin drop on where all the mushrooms are. You just go away. <laughs> like, yeah, it's never going to happen. Well, Hank, uh, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. We're going to try to wrap it up here. Um, okay. But like one of the questions we do have before we go is like, what do you got? I know you kind of touched on quite a bit of this stuff uh, in the last 10 or 15 minutes of conversation, but what do you got going on in the future and, and where can we find some of your stuff uh, currently? Well, I'm working away in the fish book. And that's going to come out in the spring. That's uh, Lake Ocean yeah. Beer. <laughs> the, the, I have we we've decided on a uh, on a title, but it's nice. it's to be named later. Perfect. Um, so that's the biggest thing that's going on right now. Uh, obviously, twice a week I post on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, which the easiest way to find that URL is to go to huntgathercook.com, and that will get to you. And I am all over Instagram as huntgathercook, and I have a private Facebook group which is called as you might imagine, hunt, gather, cook, and uh, say that you heard me on this podcast and I will let you in. Um, it oh, is nice. one of my favorite things to monitor every day because it's a, it's a huge, almost 20,000 member group wow. where all over the world, uh, a lot of Canadians, a lot of Australians, a lot of Americans. Um, and it's a no drama group. Like, you know, MAGA hat wearing guys driving dualies can talk to hippie earth mothers driving Priuses. And as long as everybody keeps politics out of it, it's all hunky dory because here's the thing in that group, everybody is focused on acquiring and working with and being better at wild foods, whatever they are. And so like you'll, you'll constantly see odd and amusing threads about, Hey, I shot this woodchuck and I want to eat it. Like, what do we do? And, there'll be a huge threat of like, Oh, well in general, the younger woodchucks are better like da da da. And so it's, if, if you're familiar with the old star Trek show, like we are the Borg and the resistance is futile. Like if you're in this group, you will become smarter. Okay. It's uh, it, it's nice to hear that, uh, different groups can, can come together on like a, a common interest like that and, and get along, especially in today's day and age. With, totally. Uh, so much like, just separation between people. Um, yeah, I mean, people are good on that. I mean, people keep it focused on the food. One question I want to ask you before we leave here, um, I think we have a couple more questions to, to go through here, but if 2020 Hank could go back and, and give uh, that Hank that was just hopping into that sous chef position advice, what would it be? Hmm. Maybe not go to so many raves. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the best answer we've had on this show. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be a t-shirt. That's, That's awesome. simple. <laughs> go to the raves, kids. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. Um, and I, I'm wondering, Hank, um, I think we kind of hinted that we might ask you this, but like, uh, 
I'm curious as to like, what are like some common mistakes or just some really simple cooking, cooking tips you can share with folks when they're looking at either their foraging kind of finds or their, their wild game kind of cooking? Like, I think the, the number one thing people need to remember is you can always cook something more. You can't uncook it. That's true. So if you are a newbie at whatever it is that, you're cooking, undercook it if you're afraid because you can cook it more. So that's number one. Number two, people with game of all kinds, you know, from quail to moose, they cook the tough parts too little and they cook the tender parts too much. So in birds, that means breasts. In four-footed animals, it's the backstrap and tenderloins. They don't cook they, they cook them too much and you know a dry pheasant breast is really unpleasant you can undercook a pheasant breast you can cook it to a medium temp, uh, temperature of about medium rare so it's 150 internal it's still got a blush of pink inside it but it's fully cooked and it'll be just fine and it's perfectly safe cool. and so conversely things like neck roast or shanks or shoulder or legs or wings they're like, oh, they're tough. You can't eat wild turkey legs. I'm like, of course you can. It's like, really? I mean, come on. But they're tough. Keep cooking them. Keep cooking them. All, all it asks of you is time. You just got to so, let them babies bathe in a nice, warm, yeah, saucy bath for a while. Totally. So, you know, in fact, the, the front of the deer gets eaten much faster in my house than the back of the deer. Um. So those are two really big things. Another really big thing would be um, to separate your bits when you're dealing with small game. So I create little vacuum sealed packets of wings and packets of drumsticks and packets of thighs and packets of breasts. So what that does is that allows you to adapt to any number of recipes that use domesticated chicken parts or duck parts or whatever to your wild game world. If you're a duck hunter and all you have are whole wild ducks, that's limiting. It's not terrible, but it's limiting. So it's a that's a thing that not a lot of people do. Um, with fish, only cook if you have a piece of a, a a nice fillet, like a block of fish, like a good nice block of like a big walleye, not the whole fillet, or salmon, or lake trout, or snapper. Get the pan screaming hot. Get refined canola oil and get that screaming hot. Put your fish down on it. After having patted the skin dry or the side that you're putting down on the frying pan dry, it can be skinless. Scrape it with a butter knife to get all that moisture off. Put it down on that screaming hot and don't move it. This is the third piece of advice. Don't move it. So if you're grilling or if you're searing something, either way, just chill. You know, like the biggest thing I see people like, well, I can't cook fish on the grill. Well, because you're fiddling with it. Just you got to leave it because it will release. And if it doesn't want to release, it's not done. That's as simple as that. And so that's another big universal truth that people tend to, to mess with. One final one for mushrooms. Virtually all mushrooms benefit from dry sauteing. So that means either put them in whole or cut them up and put them in a hot pan with no oil. 
Hmm. What's going to happen is they're about and you shake and shake, shake so they don't stick. All of a sudden they go boom and they lose all their water and you'll be it'll be like mushroom soup in there. And what that does is that that cooks out the water and makes them firmer. So because nobody likes slimy mushrooms. And as soon as most of that water comes out, then you hit it with the butter or the oil or whatever. That's another thing that a lot of people don't know about with mushrooms. Nice. So I guess, yeah, this is kind of wrapping up here. And what we usually do, uh, you got through the five burning questions, and now we kind of do our final, final thought. Um, I'm going to probably start out, and then Tristan and Chase will probably say there a little bit, and then hopefully you have something to say before we take off. But um, thank you very much for coming on. And, and one thing that I did learn from tonight, um, in a nutshell. Don't go to the raves. Yeah, don't. Yeah, well, I guess I could add that as well. But, like, basically is, like, if it's if it's easy, everyone's going to do it. And, um, I don't know, just with you even talking about, like, cooking fish and stuff, like, you can cook a fish like a walleye. It's kind of vanilla. But getting into those other species where it might be a little bit different or difficult to, to cook um, can still have a good outcome at the end. And, um, yeah, I just hope that uh, everything's out or good out in your side of the side of the the world and uh hopefully someday we can get you back on again but those are kind of my final finals i just want to say uh thanks for coming on hank and um i mean you you truly are an inspiration for uh outdoors folks everywhere uh you're have a very humble outlook practic uh very practical sustain sustainable and uh i mean i think looking back us in about 20 years here or so we're going to remember moments like when when you released your hunt gatherer cookbook and your duck duck goose and buck buck moose and and all that stuff and uh i think it's all for the greater good of the outdoors and i'm really happy we had this conversation today and uh just thanks again for coming on here I appreciate it. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I'll, in 20 years I'll probably be sipping margaritas in Mexico, but because uh, I'll be an old man by then. Hitting, uh, hitting the rave. I, I got a lot of work to do before that. And I think, the, you know, my hope is just to stay useful and stay relevant, is to, is to keep doing this thing that I do to help more and more people. Amazing. And uh, I think the part that struck me is that uh, it's, it, it's remarkable how. Uh, we we seem to have started in different paths with uh, you in the culinary world and you know kind of I think all of us around the table here in Manitoba kind of started in that hunting fishing world very much so immersed and uh, now we're I I feel we're trying to walk the same path in a lot of ways and uh, I I do believe it's a good path so I I appreciate uh, it's almost a, almost a tip of the hat at the trailhead to uh, any compadres i might see out there trying to live the good life if you know what i mean yeah and not only that but like you're you're the one that's like in canada shoveling that path for us shoveling all the snow away so we can follow you i guess yeah yeah <laughs> making making way eh? so well uh, my my relatives are all canadian I, my grandparents on both sides are from ontario oh that makes total sense now thanks for all the work hank thanks for coming on the podcast and uh we're really looking forward to the the next cookbook coming out and uh maybe that margarita uh mixology book coming out in the future (laughs) there you go if you're ever in manitoba stop by for a catfish oh my god i have to do that again that was so fun (laughs) nice okay and yeah you can just hold on here we're uh we're cut now hank but uh we just like to debrief with our guests here.
And that was Hank Shaw with uh, Panoramic Outdoors. Another great episode that we, uh, you know, humble brag, but it was a great episode, and hopefully everyone enjoyed it. If you guys are looking to help us out and support our podcast, uh, we would ask that you go to our website and check out our merchandise, all our hats, sweaters, um, and just a heads up to our signature sweaters, which are the gray and the black ones, are kind of on a big back order right now because of COVID. So if anyone's looking for those sweaters, just give us a message and let us know that you are looking for them. Um, and we'll try to get your name on a list. And if not, uh, thanks to anybody that's been helping us out that way and, and buying hats and sweaters and whatever else we got. Um, but other than that, I think that's all I got for tonight. And you guys have anything else? Don't forget to head over and give us a like and review on uh, iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. And uh, other than that, thanks for listening, folks. Go buy a case of Trans Canada. <laughs> Keep your knife sharp and your powder dry. Lines tight. See ya.